once they sit down and they know they are safe, then they get a chance to start crying. Do whatever I can to collect money to for playgrounds. It's definitely not sustainable. <laughs> it's not easy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Arabian Business, Smartcast, and Najahi Events. Today's guest, I met him a few weeks ago in Rwanda, where he organized a trip for us to go and build a playground in an orphanage. He's the founder of The Power of Play, an organization that has now built over 34 playgrounds in refugee camps and orphanages around the world. He's an ex-extreme sport athlete that had a near-death experience which changed the direction of his life. Reza from The Power of Play is our guest next. Let's cue the music. By 2050, we're not going to have enough food on the planet to feed the population as it grows. So we have to think of new technologies that will solve that problem. And smart cars are at the forefront of that revolution and have developed phenomenal facilities and technologies to be able to grow food by using 95% less water, solar power, wind power, no pesticides, no GMO, just really good wholesome products. And while I was in Holland last week, I tasted their tomatoes. Oh my God, they were amazing. So please go check out Smartcast Tech. So S-M-A-R-T-K-A-S-T-E-C-H on Instagram. Learn about their story and listen to what David, the CEO, is up to because genuinely it's a phenomenal business. Now, partnering with Arabian Business means we're partnering with the biggest news publication here in the Middle East. If you want business news, this is the place to go. And they've done a deal for you guys to give you a 25% discount off subscriptions. All you've got to do is go to the code ABEXEC. So that's your discount code ABEXEC, and you'll get a 25% discount on subscription. Trust me, it is the best place to go for business information in this region. Najahi Events sponsored my podcast from the very beginning. They've been supporting me now for nearly three years. I have a beautiful relationship with the founder, Alpha, and she really believes in what we do. And I can't thank Najahi enough. So go check out Najahi Events on Instagram. You'll see them there. They bring motivational, inspirational leaders and speakers into the region so that we can be inspired and we can learn. They're at the forefront of teaching people how to use blockchain and cryptocurrency. So you'll find lots of their technology and specialists over there teaching what we need to learn so go check them out at uh, Najahi events n-a-j-a-h-i events so Reza thanks for coming to join us on the show and I feel like this podcast is going to be about a great trip we had to Rwanda together but I want it to be so much more than that so for the benefit of all of the listeners and the viewers today give us a quick pitch on who you are what you do and what uh, how on earth you got into doing what you do today all right. Uh, first of all, it's an honor to be here with you, Spencer. And that was a lovely week to spend together in Rwanda. Um, to make it short, I was born in Iran, in uh, Persia. And, you know, first six years of my life was du- during Iran and Iraq war. Um, so I was born and raised through that time. And, you know, raising up during war, it has a chaos. It's a lot of darkness. Um, I remember as a kid, our city used to get bombed. And usually the bomber plane would come at nighttime. And we used to all go and hide in a bunker with my cousins and aunts and uncles. Um, 
they I remember they would tape up the windows in case they shattered. Some of them would hide under the table. Um, and it had this darkness. Um, but I remember for me, as soon as everything would go dark, it was time for me and my cousins to play hide and seek and play other games. So we, we, we had our playtime during the war. Um, and I grew up uh, in Iran until I was uh, 19 when I moved to Canada. Um, I know somehow uh, as I was growing up, I always played and always looked for adventure on trail and I got into uh, lots of extreme sport, you know. <laughs> to be frank, I was an adrenaline junkie. Uh, I needed that rush, you know. Give me an idea of some of those. What were those extreme sports? Uh, you know, like uh, speed flying, uh, ice climbing, uh, snowmobiling, um, free climbing. Uh, well, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't, I'm not having that. You're talking about things in a way like that's an everyday thing. <laughs> what, what's speed flying? Uh, so speed flying is, oh man, it's lots of fun. Um, you have this wing that is similar to paraglide, but it's a lot smaller. So you're coming down really fast. And usually uh, I did it with the ski. So I wear my skis. I have the wing above me. I ski down the mountain and get to the cliff, fly off, then land again, global skiing and fly again. So that's how it was in winter, summertime, off a cliff or something, just jump off with the wing and go through the canyons and whatnot and just come down. And was this like a hobby? Did you compete professionally? I mean, what, what kind of stuff, did, what level did you get to? Uh, for speed flying, no, I didn't compete, but uh, I used to be an instructor for uh, mountaineering, um, ice climbing, uh, rock climbing, scuba diving. So a lot of sport, I really, really got into it. Uh, speed flying, it was a short career. <laughs> I didn't get to really carry it too long before I started having some accidents. Oh, really? Did you? Tell me what happened. Uh, yeah, so speed flying, I um, I got into it, and one time I was doing a, a fly from a rock, and um, I saw the wind is coming. You need a wind, like a headwind to, to fly. I see the wind is coming, so I start running, and I got to the end of the rock. As I jump off, I could just see the wing is not doing what it's supposed to, but I was all the way down, like just got to give it all last step off the rock and like oh no i am coming down really fast and i was going in a circle going down like and i just noticed there's something wrong with my wing and i uh, just you know went with it and start coming close and i hit uh, the first tree with my leg and i came to the second tree i grabbed on the tree it was just the very top of this tall pine tree um, as i grabbed it there was no more wind so the wing collapsed and came down so i got heavy and the tree snapped and i fell all the way down and i tumbled between the branches and i hit the ground and i hear this beep sound everything went dark then uh, things start getting white and comfortable and fuzzy um and I was getting really drawn into it, but I could hear my friends calling my name, you know, Reza, Reza. And I just knew I have to respond to that name, to my, to my name. Uh, so I opened my eyes. I saw my friends are above me, just looking at me. Um, and I walked away from this uh, fall just with a concussion and a few bruises. Um, and this was the, the wake-up call for me, you know. 
how many years had you been this kind of adrenaline junkie? Had it been like, you know, in your teenage years all the way through to adulthood? Yeah, yeah. I started uh, rock climbing when I was 12 years old. Um, and when I came to Canada, I really got into, you know, more pushing it um, until I was, uh, how old was I? 34? Yeah, 34 when this uh, last accident happened. You were a bit of a lunatic, really, weren't you? You were one of these... <laughs> these this is, yeah, the, you're going to live forever, you know, you've got nine lives, but you'll have 90 lives and it doesn't matter. You're just going to go for it because you got addicted to the adrenaline rush that came with it, yeah? Pretty much, yeah. You're not the first who called me lunatic at that time. You know, they used to call me this. I would say, you're making the cats embarrassed. They have nine. You got more lives than that. Some friends, they were saying, your <laughs> angel, whoever is looking after you is working overtime. <laughs> <laughs> But did you did you apart from that that incident when you when you got concussed? Had you been in many accidents along the way, or just one or two? Yeah, accidents? yeah, a few. I it was a time I was uh, snowmobiling. I fell off the cliff, uh, landed on my head, broke my neck. Um, the other time I fell into a crevasse, uh, broke seven ribs in my neck. Again, got to be a plash and broke my collarbone. Um, there's been a few. I fell into a tree well, almost suffocated. Um, there's been one or two or more. Goodness me. So you really have, like, gone for it, haven't you? You know, really extreme. I didn't imagine that. You know, when you, when I knew you'd had an accident, because you kind of mentioned it when we were chatting in, in Rwanda, but so, so was that that fall with, when you hit the tree then? Was that you just saying to yourself one day, okay, I think I've pushed my luck too much and it's time to stop? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You know, it, it, it was like for myself and friends that they were there, nobody could comprehend like how am I just walking away? Like, you know, after a few minutes standing up and I start literally walking away. Um, and as I was trying to just cope with this and understand it, a few days later, uh, a friend of mine who got me into this sport and he was the legend of speed flying. He had a similar accident. He jumped off. He had a malfunction, uh, but he didn't make it. He passed away. And things just got that much harder and darker for me that how is Kyle not here? And I walked away. And just over a week later, uh, Kyle's daughter was born. And wow. I was thinking, what am I doing here? You know, I, I had this thought that I took his spot. You know, Kyle is not here for his daughter. And once again, life is giving me the opportunity. And that's where I started like really questioning it. Like, is there a purpose? Is there a calling for me? Like, or is it just for me to have, you know, more fun and giggles? Like, and that's, that's, yeah, that's where I went on a quest to find my uh, calling and see, who am I? What am I doing? So how, tell me about that quest you went on. What, what, what did that look like? Uh, so I wanted to be away from everyone. And so to minimize all the voices so I can really hear my own voice, my like own inner calling. Um, so I choose Amazon Forest, um, which is not a quiet place <laughs> at all. Amazon is loud and it gets scary, especially at nighttime. I find out about these uh, monk uh, howling monkeys after a few days. Like first couple of days, I was petrified. Um, so during uh, those uh, few weeks that I uh, was tracking in Amazon forest, uh, 
it was very very phenomenal and uh, profound experience and i really got present to the time when i was a kid and i was born in iran you know during the war and during the darkness play was my light play was my escape you know my freedom and i was like this is this is the light that i had and you know got me through what i had to go through and i want to pass it on and and i really got that i am here for the kids you know like kids are the future and is nothing is more meaningful to be there for these little innocent humans that you know they yeah but you're not a fight hold on, hold on this doesn't make any sense to me you were you weren't a dad you'd lent into some time when you were a youngster in the war and, and you played yourself and that kept you busy but I, I i'm i'm struggling to understand how they got connected how you went from this extreme sports athlete to then saying holy macaroni this is crazy i've got to stop doing this i love the fact that you then explained that you know you needed to hear your own voice in your head i think that's really really important i've not heard anyone describe it like that get away from the voices so i can really hear myself um I can understand going on an adventure to the Amazon jungle. I, I've been there myself. It's a bit of a crazy place and I wouldn't like sleeping there unless it was in, in a hotel. Um, how, how, did you, how did you connect to children? What happened? Um, well, after the accident and Kyle passing away, I started carrying this guilt, you know, that I took his spot. What would Carl's daughter live right now if he had a dad? And uh, when I was there, I really, I was just thinking about it. And I was thinking about my own childhood. And got, you know, like all these glimpses and visions of my childhood. And remembering like things getting dark. And I feeling alive, like playing, running around. And mm-hmm. that wasn't where everything clicked. Um, as I was living in uh, Amazon, I came out, I was in Peru, then I went to Bolivia and I still wanted to find this silence to like really get to, you know, to discover more. And as I was in La Paz, the capital of Bolivia is a really crowded place. I'm like, I need to escape. Um, and then first day I arrived there and I see so many kids, they live in their own little community and they live in the street. You know, from a young age, like four or five years old, they live together, they beg and they try to make it and to live. And I got curious to know what is it like to be a kid living in the street. So I spent a week with those kids. You know, every day I'll just get up, get like bread and some food, give it to them and just sit back and just watch them. And as I was watching them, I was like, I saw something is missing something about these kids are not right they look like an adult in a small size you know they're just waking up and try to make it just trying to bring some food eat and just make it to the night and sleep not to be robbed wake up next morning and just daunted on me for a kid to be kid they need to play and that's where all the things just linked together and made sense so you sat there thinking these kids need to play. So what did you what did you then do immediately after spending that week with those kids? What was the next thing you did? Yeah, right away I uh, got a fly, uh, came back to Canada, 
uh, at that time I was a builder. I used to build uh, luxury homes in Vancouver and Squamish. I sold everything that I could liquefy to cash, including my business and homes and cars and whatnot, and um, started the, the power of play. And in a few weeks, left Canada, started traveling and building playgrounds. That's just nuts. It, it's it's honesty. I mean, I spent time with you, Reza. That's just nuts how you sat there and watched these kids not being able to play and begging on the streets. You've identified that they're not playing and they need to play. And then you say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to build playgrounds. Just like that. Just like that. Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I chose the responsibility of being the person to create a space for the kids to be kids. And I have yet to just think about like, what could I do better than that with my life? I'm so grateful for everything that had happened to bring me to where I am today. So, it, it blows my mind that there's people like you that exist on this planet. Number one, adrenaline junkies that are as mad as you, but, um, but, but also people that have this ability to identify and then, you know, a lot of people want to find their calling. They want to find their purpose. They want to find, you know, the right career that's going to make them happy, etc. But what you did is so far removed from anything I would have even imagined, let alone done, that I find it really, really, really inspiring to see you did that. So take me practically, because it's quite an emotional journey here, but I want everyone to understand practically what you did. So where was the first playground you built? Did you do it through setting up a nonprofit? Did you ask some friends to give you some cash? Did you just pay for it yourself? What happened? So <laughs> it was one of those things, you know, when the idea came, I just, I knew I'm going and that's it, nothing going to stop me. So I came back to Canada as I was uh, selling stuff. I talked to a couple of friends and said, hey, this is what I want to do. And they said, oh, maybe you should work with some other NGOs and start learning and then eventually do your thing. So I did some research. I couldn't really find that many organizations that they do what I wanted to do to build playgrounds. Um so I started the power of play and I started talking to people like, hey, where should I go? And somebody said, you should go to Uganda and uh, kids get treated really bad, especially children with uh, Down syndrome or autism. Um, you know, sometimes they've been considered as cursed and like they've been treated really poorly. And I said, Uganda it is. So I uh, flew into Uganda. Oh, 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 hold on. Who said, who said, you, who said that? A friend, I uh, was just chatting and somebody told me, go to Uganda. <laughs> like, all right, I'll go to Uganda. <laughs> <laughs> you just went, I'm going to go to Uganda. It was as simple as that. Simple as that. I just had to start. And you'd never, you'd never been to Uganda. You didn't know what it was like. You didn't know what you were going to do when you got there. You just went, I'm going to go and look. Yeah. Yeah. So just before going there, I uh, I found uh, an orphanage. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll go to this orphanage and stay with them and build a playground. I got to that orphanage and uh, it's really unfortunate that, you know, there's uh, quite a few orphanages in some of the countries that uh, they're just a business. You know, there's a lot of kids that are orphans. They bring them in and they just collect money and kids are just, you know, suffering there. So it didn't take a while to recognize that. And I just start asking around in Uganda, like, I need to build a playground if anybody knows where I should go. 
as somebody told me in north of Uganda, which is just south of South Sudan, is one of the world's biggest uh, refugee camp. And this camp, some days they get uh, three to 5,000 refugees coming in. So there is shortage of everything. And it's like, all right, I'll go there. And uh, so I so just asking around a bit. And somebody says, to go to a refugee camp, you need to be part of the United Nation or the government or need to have a permit. So looking for a permit, it wasn't easy. Long story short, I got the smuggled into the refugee camp. Um, and when I got there, it, it was, you know, it just shook my world to see like this exists. Describe what it looked like. Uh, it's embarrassing for us humans, you know, that there are people living like the way they do. So I started driving and like, this is nothing. It's just like every now and then some shrubs and a couple of trees and we just drive all the way to this desert, the area called Ajumani and it's called Ajumani Refugee Camp. Um, and then once we start getting to the camp, as far as you could see, you just see small pieces of tarps. Uh, some of them had UN logo, some of them nothing. And there are families and people living under those. And I spent some days there and all they do is just sit under the tarps until there's a time that they hand out food or something. They all line up, get their food and go hide down there. And their food is they give them a millet. It's like a flower. Um, they give them 30 kilo of that a month. And that's all they get. They have some salt and they eat millet every day of the year. And some of them they've been living there for two years, three years. Like some some faces they even start having deformity from the malnutrition. Um, the heat and I remember I was there and I saw uh, like the, everybody started like running around all the the workers and the, the soldiers and uh, they say oh people they're gonna come they just heard there was a attack because you know Sudan and South Sudan they've been having the civil war for seventy years. Uh, I said the people they're gonna come they're gonna flee right now. And as would people would come, you know, the way that the, the attacks happen there, they usually the rebel or soldiers will attack a village. They uh, kill the men. A lot of times by chopping their limbs off. They rape the women. They kill them. They take the girls as a, for human trafficking and take the boys as child soldier. And those that they get to escape and flee, they run. They get to the camp. A lot of them are bleeding. And once they sit down and they know they're safe, then they get a chance to start crying before I was just escaping. And it's, it was, you know, I was just, I was grateful to be there so I can do something. The little, very little that I can do. And um, that's where we said we'll build a playground. And um, refugee camp is a government land, so... You know, there's a lot of loopholes we had to go through, but we got lucky to find a, an orphanage within uh, just on the side of the camp that they had their own land and they really loved the idea. So we ended up building a playground there, which wasn't easy, but it was so profound, so rewarding and humbling to do that. And that was your first playground? That was the first playground, yes. And you, so you sat there, you've you've been really moved by this environment you've then decided to take some action what kind of playground did you build so all of the playgrounds we are building are uh, sustainable we 
upcycle things like tires and whatever we can that very first playground was by far <laughs> the most challenging playground we have built <laughs> you know this <laughs> camp as i told you had like some days three or five thousand people coming so you can imagine there's shortage of everything even for tires i had to just drive around to all these villages to try to find tires uh we wanted to build them a little um uh, fort like a, a cubby house uh to find uh, lo- uh timbers for that we had to go to a village that they had few trees talk to the elder to allow us to drop a tree got an axe drop the tree process the tree with the axe <laughs> we had no tools you know or we went all around to few villages until we found a drill they say oh this guy has a drill you can get a drill from him and we got one of those hand drill you know the one you twist them <laughs> um and once we got everything together which took uh almost a month to just find enough material and again overnight we put things in a truck just had to like secretly go there and went there unload this stuff and now kids are just so happy and ecstatic and see all these like colorful things are coming off the truck and they knew it's gonna be their playground we got the uh, shovels and pickaxe and, you know, stoked, rolled our sleeves up, went through the ground, started digging. We went about five inch deep and we hit the rock. So the whole land <laughs> was sitting on this big uh, river rock. <laughs> I was like, oh, shoot, what are we going to do now? <laughs> so... We start uh, talking to some other NGOs if they would uh, lend us their uh, equipment for digging for water well. Nobody wanted to do that. And uh, so I was like, okay, we'll go with hand. We got these uh, thick metal rods um, and I start digging with just rod going straight down. And, you know, that place is 45, 47 degrees centigrade. It's hot. So these rods are just like cooking, you know, our hands start getting blistered. And I remember I was uh, with my partner at the time. I dig, went for, you know, a couple of hours and I was just exhausted. Just barely made like a couple of inches through the rock. I dropped the tools. The rest of the laborers, they dropped their tools. We all sat back and I was just felt defeated, you know. I came all the way there, all this hope. Now I can't even go through a rock. And then I saw the children from the orphanage that they were watching us. They got up, they grabbed the tools, and they started digging. And my partner said, oh, should we get the tools from them? I said, don't worry, they're going to get tired in two minutes, and they drop it. And then I watched them, they're going, and they're going, and not stopping. And they went for like 40 minutes. And I got one of the guys there that could translate for me. And I came to this case and I said, please ask them to drop the tools. They're going to hurt themselves. And as I got there, I saw a couple of these kids holding this hot metal rod. Their hand had blistered. Blister had popped. They had blood in their hand and they were still digging. And uh, so he translated and asked him, like, please drop the tools. And they said, no. This is our playground, and we want a playground. And I was like, "You will get a playground." And um, yeah, that was that was the testament, you know, just just to see that and like how much these kids they know what's coming and how much they want it. And once it was built, um, 
I, I, what I love to do when I build a playground is just to sit back and watch the kids playing and you know, see that joy and laugh and scream. And this guy came uh, that he was working in the orphanage and it's like, I don't know what you guys do, but with these playgrounds, and he pointed at one of the guys, Diego. Uh, he says, "This kid, he lost his uh, family in a genocide, and he's been with us for two years." He barely talks. He doesn't interact with any kids. And look at him. He was just running around like a maniac, screaming and laughing and talking and pushing and pulling. And that was the moment. Like, this thing works. You know, and, and I believe in what I do. And and I'm just humbled and honored for, you know, these things show up in my life. Lots of people out there chase money and they believe that money makes you happy and that they've got to have a successful career and pay the mortgage off and get a you know get their money in their 401k or their rsp or their retirement account whichever it may be um what kind of role does money play in your world Mm -hmm. you know uh, so i've been doing this for five years and i'm still doing it voluntarily um so Making a living has always been a struggle. You know, I come back when the money runs out. I come to Canada and I uh, do whatever I can to make a living and also collect money to for playgrounds. Um, it's definitely not sustainable. <laughs> it's not easy. But at the end of the day, I am so fulfilled and content that I don't want it any other way around. You know, the way I, I look at it is all we have in life is time, right? We put the time to work. So we convert the time to work. So the work gets converted to money. And then we convert the money to things that we buy so that we can get that happiness. And we don't. No, we don't get happiness from things. And I think I've got a shortcut. I'm just using my time for the happiness. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really nice way of putting it, actually. A lot of people don't don't understand because they've never had an experience that's been moving in the way that your experience was. I think that's important to remember. I think that a lot of the time people are never exposed to that. Um, I fortunately have been exposed to kind of stuff like this along the way and was very fortunate to be with you in Rwanda just a few weeks ago for the benefit of everyone listening. How many playgrounds have you now built and in how many different countries? Mm -hmm. Uh, We have so far built 34 playgrounds in 11 countries. In the last five years? Last five years, yes, yes. So you're doing one every two months? Yeah, well, see, it's uh, like first year, I went really strong, but I burned out, you know, I, I... spent everything I had. I, As I told you, I sold everything I had and started traveling and building. And I came back to Canada with uh, $400 left in my account. Um, so I had to spend a year and a half, almost two years just to get back on my feet, to start collecting enough money. And, uh, and you know, it, it being exposed uh, and seeing the suffering, especially suffering of the children, um it's not easy you know and i'm just learning to be there and witness it and not take it on now 
And uh, for first almost four years, it was mainly three and a half years was one man show. And um, now we have a powerful team. We have a big group of volunteers all over the world. Um, and now we are really on action and getting a lot done. How much does the playground cost? About fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. So how do you, how does it go then? So t- t- teach me the mechanics. You, the first, you know, somebody said to you go to Sudan, so you went there without much planning and much thought. But how do you find a project to work on? How do you find a playground to build? What's what's the actual practical process? Because I'm sure there must be lots of bureaucracy there. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we. Basically, you look at the stuff that is going on around the world, right? Um, and we always partner up with a local NGO, uh, orphanage, refugee camp, or low-income school. Even somewhere so we don't have to go and buy the land. We build it in the land for them. And somewhere that there's already 500 or more children. Um, and we choose a country that is going through a lot. Like, you know, for example, Rwanda, you were there and you know about the genocide that happened not long ago and still there's so much trauma and big part of play is is a trauma relief you know that's how kids they deal with trauma and when we go to a country we choose a place that we can build three to four con- uh, playgrounds at the same time mm-hmm. and with that i can train a team so when i leave the country they can continue and work in their country um as of factory uh, this quarter, as of uh, April first, now we have a new thing that they apply for our playground grant, um, which is us going and look around. So it's a lot easier because we are getting to know in few of these countries. So they apply, and then we can go through the process and bidding process and uh, choose the location to build the playground. And do you get much pushback? in different countries or is it typically very welcoming it is very welcoming you know um we go to you know some places that people are really suffering you know and first thing they ask like oh why don't you give us money why don't you give us food why don't you build us home um it takes a conversation to tell them why we do what we do you know play is for mental health of children it's a food for their soul you know, and this is the same thing they say, uh, instead of giving a fish, teach them how to fish. That's empowering the children to deal with what's there for them to deal with. And uh, the happiness of the kids, you know, like play brings joy to children. And that is so contagious and brings joy to their community. And, you know, these very same people that first they ask us, you know, give us money and whatnot. And they are suffering. You know, A lot of them are hungry parents. They all come. And they volunteer and they work because they know what's coming for their kids. And um, all of our projects are community collaboration, you know, from the beginning to the end. It's for them, you know. We don't want to go there with this notion that we know what they need. We go and say, this is what we do. How can we cater it for you? And uh, we get the children to design their own playground. You know, every playground is different. It's designed by the local kids. And then we get the parents to come and collaborate and work with us. Um, the reason we do that, you know, is like these kids, they really need to know that they matter. Their voice can be heard. You know, some of these places we go, people are thinking really linear and narrow. You know, I asked somebody, um, 
Hey, what do you do? And says, I'm a farmer. Uh, why are you a farmer? He says, because my dad was a farmer and his dad was a farmer. And uh, we want them to know your opinion, your idea matters. You are unique, you know, and giving them opportunity to design their own playground is really empowering. Um, once these playgrounds are built, you know, all these little kids, they walk so proud you know, around the playgrounds and they tell to our, their friends, like, oh, I designed this. This is how you're going to play with it. You know, it's just, just see it right there. And for the parents, as, you know, they volunteer and they help, see, the playgrounds is so powerful, Spencer. Like, the day is done. Like, kids are different. And we want the parents to pat themselves on the shoulder like we did this for our kids. Feel empowered. Not that they say, oh, this foreigner came, did it, and walk away. Just we want them to know this is what they did and they can do that. And like our playground are upcycled, you know, it's like from nothing you can build something like this. And they can just, you know, give them this mindset like you don't really, you don't have resources and it's unfortunate, but you can do with what you got. Um, you said to you said to me about it's, it's something really really important when we were together. You said when children are playing, they're not thirsty, they're not hungry because they're playing. They're not tired because they're playing. Because when they're playing, they're happy. No matter what's going on, whatever they need, it doesn't matter. They're playing, and that really that really stuck with me when you said that. But but also really resonated with me is the impact of that playground to a community and how risks are reduced. You know, where are the kids? What are they up to when there is no playground? Can you just talk about that for a minute? For sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the first part you said, I just, I talk of my own experience. I remember when I finished school as a kid, I would come home just like without my parents. See, yeah, I would just drop my backpack and there I go. I'm out in the street and climbing trees and playing with my friends and until, you know, it's dark. And my parents, they every day, had every night, they had to come and drag me back home. You know, I was like, hey, you haven't had lunch. You haven't had dinner. It's cold outside. It's raining. You have all these cuts and bruises. And I didn't even notice any of them. Play was the only time that uh, I, so many of us, you forget about like, oh, I need to eat lunch. I need to, you know, maybe it's cold outside. It's so captivating and so powerful. And there's nothing else in life that like really drag us this much into it. And we forgot about everything else. And uh, but what you said about the, the communities and the risk. See, a lot of these places we build, um, children, the way they escape from hunger and from the misery and their way of you know, escaping is by getting into drugs. Um, and their drugs are just literally kills their brain. Like a big thing they do is one is sniffing glue. You know, the, the glue is very cheap. They buy the glue, they put it in a bottle, and they just put it in the nose and just sniff it until they drop. Or they put a styrofoam in a fire and mix this black smoke and just like smell that until they drop, you know. Um, and every time we build a playground, like a couple of the biggest testimonials we hear from the parents is that one is now instead of our kids, they do drugs, they are in a playground playing, they are together. As if in, when we are worried and we need to find our kids, we know where they are. They are in the playgrounds. You know, it's just they say instead of now being against each other, they are together with each other. Um, and literally is building communities, become this place of gathering. And playground is not about that 
a slide or swing or tires. It's about the space. You know, we are creating that space of play. Like in the home, you have kitchen is a place to cook. You have the bathroom is a place for other stuff. And now in the community, there's a space to play. And that's what it is. You know, families come together. They, they get feed off their kids' happiness. I see so many times the parents just sit back and watch their kids laughing. And they get joy, you know. They get the giggle from them. You called your organization The Power of Play. What, what's what's your big ambition? What's your goal? You've done thirty four, did you say now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. What, what's 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 the what's the what's the, the you know the dream? All right. Well, the dream is to work ourselves out of job. You no, know, I I'm really looking forward for a day that we can close the power of play. Once every kid around the world has the opportunity to be kid. Um, then that's what we're working towards, you know. It's and every kid deserve it, you know. These innocent little things are born to the world and dealing with the crap that us adults left behind. And mm-hmm. see, there's so much happens through play. That's why we call it the power of play. During play is when kids they get to connect with each other, socialize. That's where they learn how to social and connect with other kids. You know, they learn their boundaries. They learn, okay, I need to stay in the lineup. They learn to take risk, you know, and they deal with lots of things that is there for them to deal with. For me, when I'm during the war, you know, every time I was playing, a lot of times we turned to a plane and chase our friends. And that was our way of coping with what is happening, you know. Um, and so many of the kids we work for, you know, are focused on, our, on the kids that are, in low-income family, that kid is supposed to bring bread to the table. You know, kids that are, they used to be child soldier. They've seen and done things that us as an adult can't even comprehend. Some kids, they've been tra- uh, survived from human trafficking, child labors. And there's so much for these kids to deal with. And is amazing how through play they get to regulate their emotion and deal with this stuff uh for example you know anger is an expression it's a way human express themselves and play is the ultimate way to express so kids they get to get so many things out of their system and that's the way i believe to make our world a better place you know like these kids now, they're becoming empowered. They're becoming connected. Uh, they've been uh, research in actually a prison in Texas, and they uh, got 26 convicted murder, and they went back and recreated their life just to understand how somebody can be, you know, cold-blooded murder. And as yeah. they did this, what they discovered was in every 26 of them, they lacked play as a child in their childhood. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I'll send you the research. It's really interesting. Um, because, you know, as you're playing, you like bullying or you push somebody and falls and cries. And that's how you start creating compassion by feeling somebody's sadness. But if you haven't had this opportunity, you don't have this compassion. Compassion doesn't, it's not you born with it. You know, a lot of this emotional and social things that you have as an adult, it happens during play. 
Play used to be the biggest part of our life, you know, as any mammals, you look at them, you know, like the, the cats and lions and stuff, they're always playing. They're all getting ready as an adult. They're creating how to bond, how to be together. And play is becoming less and less. And it's not just for all countries that, you know, we work in. Even here, you know, most of them now play is, you know, watching TV or behind a computer game. Or we call football or soccer play where you have a role and you have to, you know, score. And if you win, you're good. If you lose, you you suck. You're shit. You're yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's why, you know, we play by definition is voluntary work with nowhere to reach. You know, just out there, no goal and just self-directed. That's what play is. You're a bit of a modern day Pied Piper, aren't you? You're just playing your flute and the kids are all coming out to play it's like you you're one of you're one of life's good people and you've been able to lean into your experience of growing up in a war and understand that what when you look at the world and society as a whole considering what you're doing do you have compassion for the fact that people have got their heads down and their tails up and are getting on with their lives or do you get frustrated that there's so much abundance out there that could be could be um used uh in better ways it's a great question you know i uh, i'm a bit challenged with that you know and i um, keep trying to create compassion and love for everyone and i think i do have it for a way uh, up to a certain point but when i sometimes go and spend you know half a year in some of these countries and i see how people they live with nothing and they still are so generous and so loving and then i come back here and i see we have so much we waste so much and we are so entitled and we are so angry and we are so stingy sometimes like all i wish for you know a lot of us is to have the opportunity to go to these places to be in service of other people so we don't take all the resources we have for granted and in world there is enough of everything the only problem is the balance is not there in one part of the world we have so much which makes the other side of the world so little you know, uh, when you were in Rwanda, remember you guys brought the lollipop and all the kids, they went bananas to get this lollipop. Um, and I just watched it, you know, th- uh, three or four tiny kids, I think they were like four years old. You know, they got the lollipop, they started eating it and they started like running back and I just sat there and started like waving at them. And they came to me, they pulled the lollipop out of their mouth and they wanted to give it to me. And I was like, you know, you got a lollipop, it's a jackpot. And these kids are so generous. And I told him, like, I grew up, I always had a lollipop in my pocket. I never shared it. And you guys got your first lollipop. I just want to share it with someone. And see, that's where the joy is. Like, real joy is in giving. I remember the time I was in uh, South Sudan. I was in the Gorom refugee camp. And this place is hot and hostile and there's nothing to buy around there so I, we, you take a little bit of water and food with us and I remember it was one of those hot days in the afternoon we're just digging and stuff 
all of a sudden I see this lady is coming with a tray on her head that she was carrying and there was chopped watermelon. Like, oh my God, that's a jackpot. So I called this lady to come in here. I bought all the watermelon she had and I gave it to all the workers and the team and I kept one for myself and I sat back under this tree like, oh my God, this is going to be the best. As I was just about to have the first bite, I just saw in the corner of my eyes these two little kids. So I looked like this two kids maybe three or four years old just like looking at me looking at the watermelon and i go oh god damn it <laughs> so i chopped the watermelon in two <laughs> pieces i give it to these two kids and then as they start to eat this watermelon i just looking at their eyes start like sparkling and just like smile in their face i was like wow there would have been no chance i would enjoy this watermelon as i'm watching I am enjoying watching these two kids to eat that watermelon. <laughs> you know, there's so much more joy in giving. And I, I really wish for everyone to like really come from somewhere like with no exchange, with no expectation and just give to those that they need. Mm, that's a beautiful thing. And I saw that firsthand when I was with you in Rwanda, the kind of, the kind of generosity your soul has. Power of Play obviously is a a donation-led organization. You're trying to raise money all the time so that you can get out there and build more uh, playgrounds. We'll put the the Instagram um, and website and stuff links onto the podcast for people to go and check you out. But if if you could ask one thing from the people that are listening today, just one thing of them all, what could they do to help you? Mm-hmm. You know, first thing is we need to recognize that there is an issue. There is a problem. And play is missing in so many kids' lives. And without play, they are not kids. And we need to do something about it. You know, and we can empower the kids. So they can make our world a better place. Our generation and generation before, we shit the bed. <laughs> we haven't done a good job. So let's empower this new generation to create a better world. And my request of your audience is to get the word out there. And the only thing is slowing is us down is funding. You know, there's so many organizations, and I'm really happy for it, that there's so many organizations taking care of water, food, school, shelter. Worldwide, there is about 12 of us that building playgrounds. And there is so much work for us to do, and what is slowing us down is the funding. And that's because a lot of people, they don't recognize this is as an issue. You know, when we say playground, even my... A lot of people in my own family, they still tell me, like, why don't you go give them food? Why don't you just sit here and send money? You know, we need to recognize there is an issue and there's not many that they are doing anything about it. If everybody, if everybody listening to this right now can go to your Instagram profile and share your Instagram profile with their own, their own audience. That, that would be hurt. fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, then that's, that's something I'm sure if you're listening to this, watching this right now, then I'm sure that on the back of learning about Reza and his story and the power of play, it wouldn't be too much hard work for you to just quite simply share his um, Instagram profile through your audience and see if it gets any interest. If you feel like you want to make contributions or donations, obviously 
Um, that's not for me to ask you, but if that's something you feel is important to you, then please make sure you support Raza in any way that you think you can. Now, Reza, lastly, before we go, if I, I, I had lots of people after I produced this content of me being in Rwanda say to me, I would love to come and do something like that. I would love to come and spend a week helping build a playground. In fact, I'd like to bring my teenage children. I think it would be great for them to see how other people live. Is that something that's possible? Yes, absolutely. And we really want to create these experiences, you know, for people, for organization, businesses. Uh, one is, you know, just to be there and experience there. Like, uh, and I got to later ask you to share an experience or what you got, like what was one of the best moments for you, is just to be there and serve the people. It's really humbling rewarding and fulfilling and uh, there's so much comes with it when you come back you don't take things for granted and if you come with family you know if you bring your teenage kid if you come with your team which you did i think you really get connected with your team in a different level you know it's not just another retreat let's go to cancun and sit back in a beach you guys are getting your hands dirty. You are doing something for the kids. And the joy you get from watching the joy in these little humans is just so gratifying. And now I just want to hear one of your good experiences or a special moment from that trip. I have many special moments. Obviously, you come back and you realize that, that you don't have problems. That's one thing. Another thing. Um, buying the footballs was very special for me to see them react to getting footballs and to be able to then at both of the playgrounds we were at to be able to play football with the kids was just fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, I, I also, I, f I felt like I was, I was connected to something much bigger than myself. And I remember while I was there, Sophia said, um, Spencer, you know, we're going to go trekking one day while you're here. Which day would you like to go trekking? And I was like, trekking for what? She's like, well, you love to go hiking, Spencer. It's your thing. So, you know, we've put a day aside while you're here to go hiking. And I'm like, I'm here to work. And that, that's how I felt from the moment I arrived. I'm here to work. I want to get this job done. I want to do it the best way possible. I'm rubbish with my hands. You know, if my dad, my dad, he won't even let me in the, in the garage to pick up spanners and, and, and screwdrivers. He's like, put it down, put it down. Um, but the fact that you know, I was able to, to do stuff and contribute just filled me with joy. And obviously those kids are fantastic that we spent time with and you could, you could steal easily 10% of them and take them with you. If you get them in the suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just come away from it feeling like I'd spent valuable amount of time. And I went back to my business partner, Danielle, and I said, look, can you just cancel that Vegas trip, please, that you've got for your top performers in the company? Let's not do that. Let's take them to Rwanda or wherever Raza is and go and build a playground together because it will give them so much more than just going to Las Vegas and to a show and to this and to that. And so that's what she and I have agreed to do. So it is, it is compelling. And more importantly, it's life-affirming and life-changing at the same time. And I have nothing but an enormous amount of admiration and gratitude for you and what you do. And I'm also deeply inspired by your work. And I just long may it continue. Thank you so much. It's It was an honor to have you there. And I remember we had all this planned for, all right, Spencer is coming. Let's go to this lodge and we go to this hike. 
And I don't forget, like, the first day you came in there and said, like, I am here to work. I want to get my hands dirty. And I remember you, you were digging like a madman. And Sarah and Claire, they had, like, paint all over their head. And even Sarah's phone was, like, dipped in the paint. And they loved it. And if you know or not, uh, Sarah, uh, your uh, PA, she uh, sent me a video of when she got back home. She built a little playground for her own kids in their backyard. And that was so beautiful to see. Um, and thank you for uh, yeah. what you got with uh, your business partner. I, keep the good news to yourself. That's amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get it organized and we'll come out. We want to want to help build a playground and uh, uh, and just yeah, and just contribute. And uh, I applaud all that you do. You definitely are a man on a mission, a man with purpose. Reza from Power of Play, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Well, there you have it. When a guy can tap into his own experience of playing whilst living in a war zone as a boy and then channel his energy in helping people feel good by building playgrounds in orphanages and in refugee camps. What kind of a guy? And what an incredible guy he is. So much respect for Reza. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, then please leave us a five-star rating. You've got no idea how much it means to me. Also, if you're listening on any other podcast platform, give us some feedback. Give us some love. You know, If you don't like the podcast, let us know. If you'd like us to improve it, let us know. If there's certain guests that we haven't got yet that you'd like us to get on the show, let us know. Because the more that you do, the more I can make this podcast better and more relevant for you, and you can have a better experience. And that is my objective. I'll see you on the next show.